Weekend World. Community News. Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa Peace and blessings to all our listeners. Welcome to the Voice of Islam Radio. It is Sunday, the 28th of January 2023. The time now is coming up to 10.06. The Weekend World Show on Voice of Islam with Asan Ahmadi. You can listen to Voice of Islam on DAB radio, mobile or online 24 hours a day. The Weekend World Show is a current affairs show with the week's news, views and reviews from a faith and non-faith perspective, broadcasting live from the Bethlehem Mosque in Morden, promoting the message of peace and unity, discussing religion, politics, sports, and topics of faith and spirituality, a message of Islam for the West. Join us and share your views or stories by phoning on 0208-687-7878 or you can tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. The views on the Weekend World Show are those of the individuals and guests and not necessarily the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. My co-host will be Waleed Ahmed, who is the Chief Librarian here at the Bethel Futhu Mosque, UK's largest mosque, as well as the Editor and Chief uh, of the Ahmadiyya Muslim Publication. Last show, uh, we read a quote from Howard Zinn, an American historian, playwright, philosopher, socialist, intellect and World War II veteran. He said, there is no flag large enough to cover the shame of killing the innocent people. We had a long discussion on that topic, and uh, what came about this week sort of brings this quote into perspective. The National, an online magazine, a newspaper, a media outlet, writes... A man who was part of a group holding a white flag in a Gaza safe zone was shot dead in the street minutes after giving an interview on how they wanted to save their families. In an interview with ITV, one English-speaking man said his family had fled Gaza City when the war began and his family were now running away again, this time abandoning Khan Yunus to head for Rafah. It's been uh, a clear human rights uh, 
ruling that anyone carrying a white flag is not to be attacked. And in Gaza, we've had two incidences now, one, this particular one, and we've had the previous one where the IDF killed their own Israeli soldiers or hostages uh, uh, who were carrying white flags. So what is going on and what is happening with human rights in Gaza? Uh, and we'll be discussing that in our show with Sheikh Rahman in a minute. Uh, we'll also be discussing the Faith in Focus segment, Faith in Focus, sorry, segment, discussing further the life of the Promised Messiah, salam, peace be upon him. And then after the 11 o'clock news, the Irish author Declan Henry will be on our show. He's been on the show a few times, has, and he's just had his latest book released on the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community from a Lahori Ahmadi perspective. It'll be an interesting perspective, uh, and we will chat with him uh, as he visited the group in Lahore as part of his research. And then uh, in the Ask the Imam segment, we'll ask Daniel Kalun, our young imam, on the Ahmadiyya perspective of what what... what the, were the circumstances around the split, and uh, what uh, what were the circumstances, and and how those uh, views differ from those of the Lahori perspective? Uh, it hopefully is a thought-provoking show in uh, in uh, in store for our listeners. Hopefully, God willing, uh, anyone eager to comment or share their views can do so by phoning o two o eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight, or they can tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. Voice of Islam on DAB Radio, mobile or live stream on voiceofislam.co.uk forward slash live. This is the Weekend World Show with Asan Ahmadi. The views on the Weekend World Show are those of individuals and guests. Right, so let's move on to our first segment of the show, which is the News Review. Weekend World. Look at this week's news, views and reviews. Right, um, the ICJ ruling in Gaza, <coughs> excuse me, in Gaza genocide case re- renews calls to end Israel arms transfers. This is reported by Al Jazeera. The report further rights advocates and legal experts have welcomed the International Court of Justice's ICJ decision ordering Israel to take all measures within its power to prevent acts that could amount to genocide against Palestinians in the Gaza Strip. While it stopped short of explicitly demanding a ceasefire, the top court of the United Nations on Friday acknowledged there is a plausible risk of genocide in the bombardment Uh, in the bombarding of Palestinian enclave and refused to dismiss the case brought by South Africa. It's a huge defeat for Israel, one of the biggest defeats in the past 75 years, said Ray Jarrar, Advocacy Director of Democracy for the Arab World now, or Dawn, um, and a think tank in Washington, D.C., The ICJ's decision in The Hague also spurred renewed calls to suspend weapon transfers to the Israeli government, with advocates saying that it amounts to complicity and violates international law. This includes arms shipment from the United States, Israel's foremost backer. It's a watershed moment for the United States government 
and the United States government is put on notice that they cannot continue their blank check policies with Israel, Jarrah said. The U.S., he continues, the U.S. can't and should not continue its arms transfer with Israel now. However, the U.S. President, Joe Biden, has rejected those efforts while bolstering assistance Excuse me, to the Israeli government. Let's play a short clip um, of that decision. Just a couple of minutes earlier. We are satisfied uh, that the provisional measures that we sought uh, to be addressed would be uh, uh, addressed by the court. And uh, I believe if you read the convention very carefully, uh, the matter of uh, how uh, a war uh, or conflict is conducted is not elaborated. I would have wanted that the word cessation uh, is included uh, in the judgment. I have no way that I'm going to say I'm disappointed. I hoped for it, but the fact of delivering humanitarian aid, the fact of taking measures that reduce the levels of harm against persons who have no role in what Israel uh, is combating for me, requires a ceasefire, and I believe Israel would have to attend to how it conducts its search for the hostages and for those Hamas individuals who carried out the October 7th uh, attack. What's the next step? I've never really been hopeful of, uh, about, about Israel, uh, but Israel has very powerful friends who I hope uh, will advise Israel that they should act. Israel's commitment to international law is unwavering. Equally unwavering is our sacred commitment to continue to defend our country and defend our people. Like every country, Israel has an inherent right to defend itself. The vile attempt to deny Israel this fundamental right is blatant discrimination against the Jewish state, and it was justly rejected. The charge of genocide leveled against Israel is not only false, it's outrageous, and decent people everywhere should reject it. Nadali Pando from South Africa's uh, that was uh, Nadali Pando from South Africa, who put the case in the United Nations and the response uh, by uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, the Israeli president. Joining us for the first segment of the show is Sheikh Rahman, a human rights campaigner, and has addressed several events held in Parliament and House of Lords. Uh, Sheikh Rahman, salaamu alaikum and welcome to you. Peace be upon you. Ji walaikum assalam. Thank you so much, and to you too. Thank you. And so, God. A very impressive start. Thank you. <laughs> um, we, we can always do better, Sheikh Rahman, but uh, with you on our side, we always uh, we always know we've got a friend on our side. <laughs> but, no, but seriously, every time I'm invited to your show, I get more and more impressed. Thank you very much. Very kind words. Um, and, and I hope it prompts uh, listeners to phone in as well and give their views because that's what the show is all about. And that's why we have people like you, Sheikh Rahman, on the show who give us some Thank very sound and very um, professional advice and uh, info into the situations. Now, listening to uh, what Al Jazeera said and, and what Nadali Pandor and uh, Benjamin Netanyahu have said on the ruling by the ICJ, so it's a landmark ruling by, by, by you know, by, by 
any standard when you compare it with anything that's happened. What do you make of the ICJ ruling? Disappointing they did not go far enough? Or does the US, UK, European nations need to change their approach in their support of Israel? Well, I, no, I, I do not deny the uh, and do not condemn uh, the ICJ ruling mm-hmm. because the ICJ rules on the basis of evidence that is presented to them. They do not rule, any court, in fact, does not rule on the emotional uh, structures of society and or what the newspapers and media claims to be. So I think the ICJ ruling, short of the fact that they said that you know, cessation of active... Well, if you read into it, mm. frankly, it tantamounts to asking Israel to stop cessation of activities, uh, of, of the war activity. Right. And basically go, it does go far enough to to to, claim, to say that, you know, you should follow the rules of... Even if it's a war, I mean, th- this, is, this is more than a war, frankly. It's actually... I mean, look at the claims that Netanyahu makes. Mm. We wipe them off the face of the earth. He claims that the other side does that, but he doesn't fall short of those words either. So I'm afraid there there has to be some sort of now uh, international pressure, Mm. uh, whether it's through the UN, um, and I've always maintained that these bodies are frankly defunct in the present society. Right. Uh, they need to be reformed. Mm-hmm. They need to have some sort of... I mean, why can't the UN, for example, send in a peacekeeping force right now? Yeah. I mean, that might, that might stop the two sides being um, aggressive, and, and it stops the killing of innocent people. Um, I mean... I presume, Sheikh Rahman, that the, the issue is that uh, whatever the United Nations say, whatever mm-hmm. the ICJ say... Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu is not going to listen to them and he's not going to allow this peacemaking force to come in. He's not allowed any of the press or the media to cover anything because he just wants to portray the image what Israel has do- is doing uh, or from their perspective without showing the real facts. It's, we're very fortunate that there are uh, videos and social media which is exposing uh, some of the lies. I mean, the whole 7th October attacks, the, mm-hmm. there were many lies in there which have now been de- debunked uh, that came from Israel, and they've now backtracked on many of those. Had social media not existed, those lies would not have been exposed, the killing of babies or the beheading of babies or babies in ovens and things like this. Uh, and many of the killings apparently took place by the IDF soldiers, it appears, from helicopters and from land. Uh, so they weren't all killings by Hamas. So we are lucky that social media is there but the ICJ at the end of it uh, as you said uh, I think it has come up trumps on this one because there was a lot of pressure on the ICJ that Mm -hmm. is it going to be under the pressure of the Americans and the Israelis to come up with their decision or is it going to completely uh, criticize Israel but they've come up with probably the right result which shows their impartiality yeah I think also they've come up with a very balanced judgment Mm. in terms in terms of the effect and now it's the judgment which needs to be implemented and who but the ICJ or the United Nations are the only ones that can implement that and I see and and the United Nations unfortunately even if it's a if it's a resolution that is presented at the Security Council yeah for implementation of this judgment I'm 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 not 
100% sure, but I'm I'm sort of like bordering on to the 100% that the U.S. or their allies will actually use their right of veto, right, uh, to to you know get rid of such a such a a resolution. Hmm. However, the United Nations now needs reform, and that reform comes with the implementation factor. Yeah. So not just passing resolutions after resolutions, and we've seen this throughout the world, you know. We've seen so many of these resolutions, which frankly, on paper, look brilliant, but the implementation of those resolutions doesn't happen. Uh, beautiful reports yeah. are produced, beautiful reports are produced yeah. and they just lie on the shelves to, to rot away. Uh, it is it is said that uh, israel has been the uh, the biggest in in refusing uh, have the most united Reason, united nation resolutions imposed upon them which they've never acted upon and and, and never follow uh do you, and, and and do you think that uh, the veto system needs upgrading or or totally removed even uh, because that is what seems to be the biggest hindrance nowadays it should be removed in a changing society since the UN was formed you had these five powerful nations hmm. who, who who secured themselves the right of veto the world has changed beyond that now and and the UN definitely needs reforming the ICJ needs reforming all of the UN agencies then need reforming and their funding because without the funding without the the, the proper funding going into these um, agencies and whatever, um, they'll never work. Mm. It, it won't work. I mean, look what, what has happened just now. Immediately after the ICJ ruling, the is it the UNRWA? That, the funding for them has stopped. Yeah. From, 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 from America, part. from Canada, from the United but, Kingdom. Yes. The U, I mean, so how, how do they expect? I mean, is that not a blatant... Um, misuse of power hmm. uh, against the United Nations itself. So, yes, the UN needs reform, definitely. Uh, you, Donald Trump, during his campaign of his first presidency, he cut the funding to the United Nations, uh, particularly because he said that we are we are putting far too much money in compared to all the others, same into NATO. Um, yeah. uh, so... Uh, are, are these organizations heavily relying on the funding coming from America, who are the largest contributors, and with them, their allies? Because whenever America takes an action, their allies will follow suit as well and cut down. And, and we've seen that in just in this uh, cutting off UNRWA. It's, it's not the first time America has not uh, stopped the funding for UNRWA. They, they did it a few years ago. That's right. I mean, basically, um, all of the funding is related to a political um, game for these countries. And that, I think, needs to be revised and, and reformed. Mm. So the reforms should really go beyond any political game um, and, any, and for that matter, any defense game right. as well. Right. Because you have huge defense budgets. Um, what are you, what are you, you've got to spend that money mm. and you've got to use those weapons somewhere. So unfortunately, all, I mean, it's a major, major reform that needs to be done 
uh, if the if the world is to become a peaceful planet. Yeah, they need uh, to change the model of funding uh, and how they get the money. If it's heavily reliance on one on one big nation or a few nations, then obviously they're going to have their bigger say, uh, the big biggest uh, 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 slice of the pie, aren't they? Uh, and coming back to the ruling now, um, the court has ruled that. Uh, that Israel needs to take all measures within its powers to prevent yeah. acts of genocide. Does this mean so far no genocide is taking place by that decision, or does it mean that Israel has to answer to more? I think it's a it's a very cushioned judgment, and and there is an implication that genocide is taking place. Mm-hmm. Therefore, short of using the word. And again, based on the evidence that was pre- presented to them, uh, that is, I think it's an extremely well-presented and a very well-balanced judgment. And if you read into it, it's actually saying to it, saying to the two nations, and especially to Israel, uh, stop the war. Let the let the human beings live their lives. Don't keep pushing them back and back and back. Two million people, 2.2 million people displaced. You know, is that is that a sensible way of dealing with things? No. And then and then they and if my house is bombed and my family is killed, what sort of reactions do you expect that I will have? You know, yeah, so you've got, yeah. you've got to look at both sides of the coin. Hmm. Um, I don't think the October seventh, um, the, the October seventh incident was a is such a massive inc- incident that it actually encouraged Israel to, to create the kind of conditions that they've created. And I'm afraid our British politicians, um, and mostly within the present government scenario, uh, and some in the opposition as well, are actually you know, supporting what Israel is doing. Uh, and, and funding, you know, just funding uh, Ukraine, funding um, Israel, please fund our own NHS, fund our own education system, uh, fund our own health, uh, our own roads, and, and look at the potholes in our country. Mm. You know, let that funding be used in the UK, not not outside of the United Kingdom, and not to encourage wars. Save save lives here and save uh, our standard of living here, rather than uh, fund the killing of the masses which is taking place. Uh, yes. in, in, in Israel and, and, and yeah. what appears from the ICJ ruling that yeah. genocide is certainly uh, something that Israel needs to answer and they've asked yeah. for more reports from Israel about what they're doing about this. Uh, within so, one... Yes, go on. Sorry, within one month. Yeah. They've asked Israel to report within one month so we, mm. we've still got another what, another three weeks left for yeah. them to report. Let's see what they report on. Mm. I mean, what, what sort of impact is that going to have on other nations? That is, this is what the ICJ ruling is. Uh, they have to report. Israel has to report back. Um, so this means that uh, the other nations will have to assess what they're doing in terms of funding. But instead, we hear, as you just mentioned, that uh, they're cutting uh, funds to UNRWA, which is uh, an organization which helps uh, those in dire need, and the Gazans in particular are now in dire need. Yes, yes, I think that is that the other nations. 
I mean, somehow the other, uh, unfortunately, the Muslim bloc, 58 countries or is it 53 countries? Um, barring Turkey, which has taken a position on this, mm. um, unfortunately, none of the other nations have actually even said a word to help or support the 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 atrocities committed in Gaza yeah. and the killing of the Palestinian people. Mm. So how does that, you know, and, and these yeah, are oil, yeah. some of them are really oil-rich countries which can easily support um, mm. you know, the the situation in terms of 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 helping the the the, the Gaza situation mm. and or the Palestinian people. But unfortunately, again, if you look at the the global world, look at Yemen, you know, it's not just it's not just Palestine. It's it's unfortunate that that part of the world is in in very very uh, very very dire need of reform. Indeed. What about uh, the seventh October attacks by Hamas, um, horrific attacks uh, on the Israeli people? Um, what do the Palestinians now need to do that the, such reoccurrences do not take place, which really takes them backwards instead of forwards? You know, the two-state solution is what everyone wants, but this has yeah. caused havoc, havoc to that uh, situation, to that scenario. Well, the two, the, I think the two-state solution has always been on the cards. It's a UN resolution mm. uh, back many, many years. It hasn't been implemented. In fact, in fact, Israel has expanded their territory since. Um, and the, and if you look at the 47 map of Palestine and you look at the map now, um, it's frankly insignificant in terms of landmass, even in terms of of, um, of the Palestinians living there. Mm. Uh, however, the yes, it has taken a step back, but that step back did not mean that you start bombing innocent people. You start killing people the way that that has been done right now, or has been done since October the 7th. So there is need for for some, I mean, I don't know if Mr. Blinken and his allies will really put their foot down and get this um, get this sorted, or, or is it going to be an ongoing situation, and are they going to actually allow Israel to go up to the borders of Lebanon and then beyond? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's it's a bit of a problem. Mm. And while Netanyahu, Netanyahu is in power, will any changes take place? Will peace and justice be attained for Palestinians? What are your uh, thoughts on that? <laughs> I, I personally, my opinion is that I doubt it. However, there are members within the Knesset and within his own cabinet mm-hmm. who are actually demanding that that some sort sort of sense prevails, and uh, you know. Actually, Netanyahu is fighting for his political career. Mm-hmm. He knows that he will be out as soon as the war stops. So he's really fighting more for his political career than and to remain in power uh, than than anything else. So yeah, so that yeah. maybe is something that's encouraging him to carry on the way he is. Mm. Uh, and the opposition within his uh, country. Uh, led by the hostages families in particular um, yeah. is are turning against him and we were talking about justice for the Palestinian people uh, another story uh, which we sort of I mentioned earlier a group of Palestinian men waving a white flag is shot 
uh, at killing and yes. killing one. Uh, this is the NBC News. They say that the five men fear etched on their faces, lifted their hands in air as they tried to walk down a desolate and relatively quiet street in southern Gaza. Plumes yeah. of dark smoke billow into their uh, into the air close by. Uh, Walid, uh, Assalamualaikum. Mm. What, uh, what else do the NBC report? Yes, it, it goes on to say a young man holds a makeshift white flag aloft. The small group is trying to reach family members trapped down the street. A middle-aged man says on camera, gesturing with his hands. Uh, a gold wedding ring gleams on one of his fingers. Moments later, Shots rip through the buzzing sound of drones, and the men duck to take cover. But before they're able to get away, the man with the wedding ring collapses. Yes, this, uh, the NBC says, raises more questions about Israel forces' treatment of civilians caught in the war, which has already killed 25,000 Palestinians, including 10,000 children. We're just going to play a small clip of uh, how the ITV News uh, covered that. Just a couple of minutes earlier, Mr. Abu Salul had been one of a group of five men standing a hundred meters or so from Israeli soldiers, their hands held up and flying a white flag. The cameraman working for ITV News who filmed the killing interviewed young Mohammed today. We couldn't believe it happened. How was he shot? He was carrying the white flag, the symbol of peace, not of killing or violence. The IDF have not commented on this report beyond raising doubts by saying the footage is edited. Say that the footage is edited, but the evidence was clear on the TV, as all broadcasters have said. Uh, sorry, Sheikh Rahman, you wanted to say something, and, uh, but, and you can give views on this as well. I was just going to add to it that look at the displacement of the Palestinian people. You know, look at how many millions have now been... Forget the, the fact that 25,000 have been killed. Mm. It's how many people, how many families have been affected. You know, and these are young children. Operations in hospitals without anesthesia. People's limbs being cut off. I mean, I, I think it's inhuman. Mm. It's in, inhuman even to think about it. The fact that it's happening is inhuman. Belief, your thoughts? No, I was going to ask her, Sheikh Rahman. I mean, why do you think there is this kind of support uh, for um, for the for, for for Israel by states that uh, uh, are supposed to be standing up for justice and fairness um, and liberty? Why is such uh, you know blind support for for this particular state? Short answer, big funding partners for the major political parties in the West. The Jewish lobby. Mm-hmm. Okay. Is there any, any evidence of that? Huge. I mean, it's, 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 you can check up on, on the websites of okay. each of the... I mean, really, uh, on that point, uh, APAC in America, mm. uh, which is the strongest Israeli right. lobby there, uh, it clearly funds America, and they are regarded as one of the biggest funders of American politics. And no president will go into election without visiting APAC. And uh, what about the European nations? Is there APAC there as well? Same thing. And also, Same remember, thing? 
Yes, absolutely. And I can't, so Sunak I, I can't is Sunak is bankrolled by by uh, Jewish lobby. The Tory party, the political parties, not just the Tories, uh-huh. but others too. And also, please remember that um, within Israel, um, the Jewish people, the the money that they they send back, and you know, I mean, we've got major donors. There's no evidence of that, obviously, because you can't you can't see a, a website of Israel to to claim that that kind of money. I remember going going way back, way back, and I can't remember the name of the prime minister. I think it was the '73 war or something, and she said, "I I raised a, a billion dollars in one minute from the Jews in America." Mm-hmm. And this is going back, 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 back. I mean, imagine the value of one billion today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Now, but can't can't uh, oil-rich uh, Arab countries uh, compensate for that? Yes, thank you. They compensate the Western economies. Yes. So sure. no, but can they compensate for the cause of the Palestinian people? Mm. Is what Walid is trying to investigate. <laughs> I think is, <laughs> is there is there no will is there no will for these Arab countries to support the Palestinians and if it, if there is no will why isn't there the will a resounding no so why isn't there why isn't that will there to support the Palestinian Arab cause or the Palestinian well, cause it's not just the Arab cause the Muslim cause the Arab cause the Palestinian cause I mean this is in immense injustice being doing right now mm. even as a human being forget the Muslim the Arab whatever even as a human being you want to help you know mm. I can't understand what is the what is the psyche of the um, the Muslim world and and the Muslim leaders in particular uh, look at the OIC uh, you know the OIC has not met and condemned uh, the the Israelis or, or 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 supported the Palestinian cause, and they could easily have done so um, without any even even just a few billion dollars if they'd gone in and said, look, we want a two-state solution now. Stop this, stop this killing of of innocent people. Would have made a huge difference. But but do these countries fear? that America in particular, and then followed by the European uh, allies, will yeah. uh, put sanctions on trade with these uh, nations. Because I, I, think, I think they don't fear trade sanctions. They fear their own political uh, political lives being at risk. Hmm. So the house of, um, you know, South. several countries, yeah, not just, um, yeah, several countries. I, mean, yeah. I think... Um, because there is no political system in these countries, um, you know, it's unfortunate that they. And look at the number of uh, bases that are that are the American bases the uh, in in the in the in the Arab world, um, Bahrain, Qatar, Saudi, Egypt. you know, Egypt, yes, yeah, supported by the countries that they get so. But right. these, sorry, I just want to ask one. Sorry, if you don't mind, just one final question. These uh, these politicians, you say that they're they're funded by by APEC and organizations like that. Uh, aren't they fearful of the electorate because there are a lot of protests going on? I think this is the first time, Valid, you may have you may you've stated the right thing. 
This is the first time. <laughs> first time he stated the right thing, or the first time this has come out. <laughs> it's the first time that that support has been generated within the the Western world as well. Mm. And, and yes, you this this might be at the beginning of a of an end of achieving a means to an end. Um, hopefully, hopefully. Uh, this thing will stop. As I said earlier, you know, it's a changing world. Mm. And whereas in the in the past the colonial powers were all colonial powers, uh, I think the world is is changed slightly. Is changing in the right direction. Hopefully, uh, in the next ten, twenty, thirty years, we may see we may see a totally different world and a different world power emerging Indeed. you know in the far mm. east maybe in africa um, you know like look look um, south africa a country you would not never imagine in your lifetime would take the uh, take israel to the icj Indeed, mm. Indeed. yeah so this is a change yeah uh, sheikh raman uh, thank you very much for your uh, views and thoughts and uh, optimism at the end i thought was uh, uh, very welcoming uh, and uh, our prayers continue for the uh, for the unjust, uh, those who have been mistreated, those who don't face justice, and yeah. uh, may those who impose the injustice may rectify this themselves and bring about peace to the world at large. Thank you very much. Thank you, gentlemen. Both of you are brilliant. Thank you very, very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Uh, Willie? Yeah. Um, you were saying that uh, why are the Arab nations supporting? Um, but as Sheikh Rahman sort of directed himself, that the Western nations certainly are uprising now. Is it a case of that the Western nations' history of the wars that they've fought was the propaganda to keep these thoughts and now the new generation that's coming is far away from those wars and they are far more compassion and the young young population mm. the millennials and all mm. them they are the ones who are now demanding no more wars we have not learned yes. from our lessons from yes. the old yes so the protests that were taking place in america were mainly by young people um, and the polls that have uh, been conducted show that it's the young people mm that uh, are aghast at what is going on or are against the uh, the stand that the, the governments are taking. So that gives us some hope for yeah. the future. Yeah. Um, and the other thing also is, is social, uh, the social media and the fact that the reality of what is taking place is coming to, uh, to the knowledge uh, of people who are accessing the information. Mm. So you cannot... Uh, uh, try and hoodwink people, or uh, like they, like it has been mm. done in the past, uh, uh, as just, easily as that. As easily as that. I was mm. I was discussing that with the mm. Sheikh Rahman that yeah. uh, Israel stopped all media coverage from Gaza, mm. but social media yeah. allowed the information to come yes, out. Yes, and yeah. as a result of that, it seems quite clear mm. that Israel has lost the propaganda war. Oh yeah, yeah. I think that's that's very clear. I think, uh, and it, yeah, we were talking about shooting Palestinians holding white flags. They're shooting Israelis holding white flags. A few months, uh, <laughs> months ago, they did yes, the, uh, the same. The hostages, so yeah. The norms that you expect everybody else to observe mm. 
are not uh, at all observed by, by, by Israelis, it seems. It from seems. That. It yeah. is seems. Yeah. And there is no surprise that yes. most of the United mm. Nations sanctions mm. on Israel yeah. is Israel who is breaking yeah. them. Yeah. Not, not and then, then the, the sanctions laid on, on suggestions uh, or allegations that the Palestinians or a few Palestinians may have been involved in UNRWA. Mm. But the fact that there's a clear evidence that something wrong has been happening by uh, by Israelis taking improper action, mm. no sanction has been So there, there are a lot yeah. of. I mean, this is something that people yeah. can can see. They don't have to, you know, they don't have to uh, dig Indeed. for information to uh, be able to discern that. Right. Yeah. Uh, uh, we've got your section next, Valid. Yeah. Faith in Focus. So it might be a shorter one than normal. Yeah. Uh, but uh, le- uh, we have been reviewing the life of the promised Messiah in the earlier episodes. Uh, we'll be continuing that today and look at uh, events in the life of some of his many uh, qualities as well. Starting from his childhood, the promised Messiah's father, while being involved in his own troubles, was always concerned about his future. What were his thoughts about this? When I say his future, meaning the, the promised Messiah's yes, future. Yes. Uh, what were his thoughts about this? Well, um, yes, his, his father, the father of Hazar the promised Messiah, was a landowner. Mm-hmm. And his property had been uh, usurped by the British, taken over by the British. Uh, so much of the uh, of his life, uh, Gulam Murtaza uh, spent, uh, you know, using money and effort in trying to recover uh, these lands through litigation in the courts. And uh, the Promised Messiah was also uh, called in to to help in this matter and. Uh, in accordance with his father's wishes, he took up employment in Sialkot for, a, I think, not very long, for a few years, to help assist in this endeavor. However, despite his father's lifetime of, uh, of um, efforts in this cause, he ended up with little to show for it. So uh, not very successful in what he was trying to achieve. As far as the promised Messiah was concerned, his, uh, his father often lamented about his future. Uh, when asked uh, what his son was doing uh, by his friends who used to visit him, he said uh, he has become a masitar. Masitar is somebody who is bound or wedded to the mosque. Comes from the word masit, which is the Punjabi for masjid, or yes. a slang of of calling a masjid the masit, the mosque. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, very yes, very well explained. Yes, thank, thank you for that. His father. His father would worry how, how he would earn his keep, uh, you know, after he had himself had gone. So he's, you know, he said that perhaps he could be taken up uh, by a mosque as a helper, as a muallim, a uh, teacher, or an imam, and possibly earn enough to, uh, to uh, tide him uh, for food and uh, shelter. And... Uh, he didn't hold much hope for him, so he was very worried about him. He's related, and this is an inter- interesting incident by by Pete Sirajul Haq. He says that Ghulam uh, uh, Murtaza had a Sikh friend who used to visit him regularly, and he once called uh, the young Mirza Ghulam Ahmed. Now, because uh, Mirza Ghulam Ahmed led a very secluded life, Pete, uh, the Sikh friend, knew of his elder brother, uh, who was involved in the day-to-day activities, but he wasn't aware of another son, or he hadn't come uh, to meet the other son. He once asked to to meet him. And uh, this is when Zemiza Gulamad was quite young, uh, and uh, he was asked to turn up, and he was there. Uh, 
standing sheepishly before him. And the father started lamenting, as a Mirza Ghulam Murtaza started lamenting about the future of this, this son um, to the Sikh friend. And he said that uh, he was wondering um, how somebody who was immersed in books all day and knew little else than going to the mosque could ever have any kind of future. Now, why that's interesting is because years later, after Ghulam Murtaza had passed away, the same but now elderly Sikh gentleman came to visit the Promised Messiah. And it happened to be the time when the Promised Messiah was sharing a meal with his companions or holding a meeting with his companions in one of the rooms. And this room had to be, uh, was round and therefore was called Gol Kamara, or round, round room. Uh, and he was told that the Promised Messiah was busy uh, and that the old man could meet him uh, when he came out. So without any fear or hesitation, the old Sikh called in a loud voice, Mirzaji, come outside. And the Promised Messiah heard that voice and immediately uh, came out. Uh, and he came out so quickly that he didn't even have time to put on his turban. It shows the the humility that the uh, Promised Messiah had and uh, the hospitality or the need for respect to show anybody who was calling him. So uh, the man with a smile um, so he inquired, uh, so Zamizah um, Ghulam Ahmed asked him how he was, um, and the man replied, the Sikh replied, I'm content, though old age has weakened me. So he was probably being asked about how how he's feeling. And um, he then said, this, this Sikh gentleman said, Mizah Sahib, do you even remember the past discussions of the older Mizah Sahib? Had he been alive today, he would have seen this bustle now, and how his Masitar uh, son sits like a king, and how influential people come far from far and wide to serve him. And the promised Messiah listened to this uh, with a smile and then replied, yes, I do remember all of that. It is all Allah's bounty. It is none of our doing. Then uh, with, uh, with great warmth, the promised Messiah told the Sikh gentleman to wait until some food was arranged for him. And the Sikh gentleman started weeping as he recounted this conversation that he had with uh, Ghulam Murtaza uh, all those years ago and kept on saying, had Mirza Ghulam Murtaza been alive, what a sight he would have witnessed. So it is clear that if you devote yourself to God like the promised Messiah did, and Allah does not abandon you and provides for you, and this was certainly a case in point. And... Uh you, you you mentioned there that his father was a bit concerned that he spent too much time in the mosque and some future for him uh, must happen. Uh, you know, he needs to look after his uh, future. But uh, the promised Messiah was not concerned. Did he? What made him so sure um, that that you know he has support of God mm. Almighty because mm. he put so much trust in God? Yeah, yeah. Um, Yes, remember during the lifetime of, uh, of Ghulam Murtaza, the Promised Messiah was yes, de- certainly you, dependent on, on him for food and shelter. Um, and uh, so uh, as far as assurance that uh, you know something uh, will always be there for him is really rooted in, in one particular incident. That, it's a, then that was uh, when the uh, father of the Promised Messiah became quite ill uh, and the, this is a time when the Promised Messiah happened to be in Lahore. The father was in Kalyan. Fairly uh, young age? 
fairly young age. Fairly so young he's, age. we're talking about 1876. So he's in his in his 30s, 30s not okay. that uh, yeah, yeah. that young. Um, and uh, by this time, the Prophet had already uh, become recipient of two dreams, and he was informed through one of these that his father's demise was approaching. So immediately after seeing this dream, the Prophet Messiah rushed back to Kalyan to be by his father's bedside. Allah informed him that his father would pass away after sunset again, uh, an, ind- an indication from on high. Uh, Allah informed him that his father was going to be uh, passing away after, inset- and the- after sunset, and this is exactly what happened. Um, the father was 84 years old. Uh, it was 1876. And it is said that in a fleeting moment, the promised Messiah wondered that now this person that he was depending on or he appeared to be depending on. Now that he is gone, who would provide for him? Uh, and at that moment, Allah spoke to him with the revelation. Uh, it's a verse from the Holy Quran. Isn't Allah sufficient for, for his servant? And after that, the promised Messiah was assured that um, Allah the Almighty would continue to provide for him. Uh, such was the impact of the revelation that the um, Messiah actually had a ring ins- inscribed a ring prepared, uh, inscribed with this particular, these particular words, and he, w- he used to wear it. Uh, the, ri- uh, this, the ring uh, was uh, secured from Amrith Sarip, I think it was five rupees. Mm-hmm. And uh, it is still, uh, you know, it's still um, evident now because it's worn by the Khalifa of the time. Right. Um, it passed on to the Khalifa passed, uh, yes. Uh, yes. on the election of the new yes. Khalifa. So, yes, so, so we can still observe it. Yeah. Oh, mashallah. Mm. And uh, in terms of uh, concern, because the this lifestyle of the time mm. is different to today. Here, yeah. you know, our kids, once they get past university, yeah. uh, they get a feel of independence, and then as soon as they get uh, past the university, they go independently and work and and live off their own. Hmm. But in the early years, in, in in those times, you very much relied on your father's yes. support, income, accommodation, and all that. Hmm. This must have been quite worrying for the promised hmm. Messiah. Hmm. Um, how was his approach uh, to, to to that, about providing for his family? Hmm. Must, must have been some concerns for him. So there must have been some concern, but this particular revelation, uh, with the impact that it had, was such that uh, it removed all his misgivings about what would happen in the future. Um, and uh, what transpired was that uh, he was not only able to feed himself, but also others. And uh, uh, he was very hospitable. And uh, Allah charged him with the responsibility of looking after all his guests, no matter what their number. And this is illustrated by the revelation, enlarge your house that was delivered to him. Um, so, you know, make your ha- house bigger because a lot of people are going to be wanting to come and see you and to be to stay with you. Um, so the fact that a that lo- lot of people are coming, that means that Allah will also provide, or this was the uh, the indication, that Allah will also provide sustenance for them. And at another time, Allah said that so many people would come to him that the road on which they would travel would become rutted. And uh, though Qadian was difficult to ac- access in those days, this was an indication, this particular uh, intimation was an indication of how people would come in droves to pay their respects to one appointed by God and the need to prepare for them and uh, the need 
with it for the promised Messiah to be hospitable to them. And the promised Messiah was fully up to the task. In the records, there is mention made of Sheikh Yaqub Ali Irfani. He was a companion of the promised Messiah. He actually uh, lived in Hyderabad. That's where he came from. Um, this is over a thousand miles away. Um, in fact, 1,200 miles in uh, to be more specific. A poor student at the time, he traveled to Qadian for the first time in 1893. And it was already evening when he reached Patala. Patala was the main town near Qadian. Uh, it was about 12 miles away. Uh, there were no means of transfer from there. Uh, and he did not fully know the way. He was also carrying some vegetable and his belongings in his hands. He got lost on the way. And after asking for directions from those whom he met, he finally reached Qadian in the morning. There he met Mir uh, Hamid Ali, a companion of the promised Messiah who had him uh, stay in, uh, th- in that same room, the goal, goal, camera, the, cir- the, the circu- sound room. The circular room. The circular, okay. The, the, circular. the circular room. The yeah. circular, that, yes, thank you, Roger, in the house. <laughs> and upon hearing of the arrival, the promised Messiah personally uh, visited uh, Sheikh, uh, the, the new guest and made sure that a good meal was served for him. He also ate with him. And the promised Messiah said, spent a good amount of time with him. He asked him about his journey, the anxiety that he must have experienced upon losing his way and so forth and so on. And the promised Messiah then went, on, went and brought the bedding himself. And he said to uh, his assistant, Hamid uh, Ali, that he should make sure that uh, the guest is fed and to you know sort out the bedding uh, after he had brought it uh, to him. After all the instructions had been carried out, Rafani Saab uh, had laid down to sleep. Uh, Hamad Ali started massaging his legs, uh, saying the promised Messiah had instructed him to do so, as he must be very tired. So this is the kind of attention he gave to guests. So it's very, you know, very personal attention, mm. uh, and some of the things he did himself. One last question for today. Yeah. Uh, Allah also provided guidance to the Promised Messiah on his responsibilities when it came to hospitality. Mm. Can, can you tell us something about that, uh, his yeah. nature of looking after people and well, the welfare of others? Yes, there's one interesting story, that, and that is very relevant. Dr. Hashmatullah, who later became the physician of Hazrat uh, Khalifa al-Masih II, uh, was uh, a resident of uh, uh, Patiala, which is about 150 miles away from Qadian. Uh, in 1907, he came for Jalsa. Uh, this is the annual convention. At the end of the final session in Mubarak Mosque, a meeting of Jalsa officers was convened, and Dr. Hashmatullah had uh, last eaten in the morning and did not go for dinner in the langa khana in the kitchen. And the other Jalsa participants, the other convention participants, uh, uh, left the meeting, uh, uh, left the meeting uh, began uh, before he got back. So the meeting ended at 11.45 at night, by which point the kitchen had, uh, was closed. So Dr. Hashmatullah went to sleep without eating anything. Um, sometime later, he heard a knock at the door and the voice of someone saying that the, langakh, the kitchen had been opened for those who had not eaten. So he went and ate whatever was offered alongside two other guests. So the kitchen had been closed, but then in the middle of the night, he was told that, the, that uh, uh, you know, lo and behold, the kitchen has been opened again, so go and eat. What is fascinating about this incident, it was only discovered later, uh, because uh, apparently the, whole, the promised Messiah was informed through revelation that some guests, are, uh, that's, guests were hungry, and this is why the kitchen was opened. Mm-hmm. So it just shows that the promised Messiah was guided uh, by God Almighty. Uh, and uh, if there was, like in this instance, somebody who was hungry, then he was informed directly by God.
looking after others was yes. always the priority in, yeah. in many ways. Yeah. And, and, and that was chapter 62, verse 3 to 5. Welcome back to our listeners. Allah says, He it is who has raised among the unlettered people a messenger from among themselves who recites unto them his signs and purifies them and teaches them the book and wisdom, although they had been in manifest misguidance. And among others are among from the, uh, among them who are not who have not yet joined them. He is mighty, the wise. This is Allah's grace. He bestows it on whom He pleases, and Allah is the master of immense grace. Uh, joining us for this session also will be Daniel Kalun. Assalamualaikum, Daniel. Waalaikumsalam. He's a young missionary for the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, a young Imam. Uh, always a pleasure to have him on our show for uh, gu- guiding us on some of the important uh, issues, uh, current issues. Uh, Walid, uh, joining us also will be uh, Declan Henry, he's an author. Mm. We'll give him an introduction. The, he's just written a book, The Lore, The Lahore Ahmadiyya Movement, a book by Declan Henry, published by Skuru. And uh, the key on that is the persecution of the Ahmadiyya Muslims must stop. That is the plea from Declan Henry from that book. And the publishers, um, they write, consider, considered heretical... Sorry, what, does, uh, what do the publishers say, Walid? Okay, uh, considered heretical by Orthodox Muslims, followers of the Ahmadiyya movement suffer a life of persecution and vilification. Uh, award-winning writer and Islam expert Declan Henry highlights the tragic story and calls for an end to the victimization. Over the past decade alone, hundreds of Ahmadi Muslims, men, women, and children have been callously murdered in the most appalling and cruel of circumstances. Over the past decade alone, hundreds of the Ahmadi Muslims, men, women, and children have been callously murdered in the most appalling and cruel of circumstances. The movement claims that Mr. Ghulam Ahmed succeeded the Prophet Muhammad as a prophet and that he was also divinely appointed as the promised Messiah to fulfill Islam's prophecies. Interestingly, there was even a dispute among the Ahmadi Muslims about Mr. Ghulam Ahmed's status as a prophet, and uh, which led to the movement splitting into two groups in 1914, with the main group being the Qadian Ahmadiyya movement, Qadiani Ahmadis, with 12 million followers worldwide. And the other? Is the much smaller Lahore uh, Ahmadiyya movement, uh, Lahori Ahmadis, which numbers about 100,000, and who differ from Qadiani Ahmadis in that they do not believe Mirza Ghulam Ahmad was a prophet. Yes, these were the notes from the publisher. Uh, joining us uh, from beautiful Kent, the Garden of England, mm. this morning is the award-winning author Declan Henry. He's a creative 
non-fiction writer and is the author of eight books and numerous published articles. Good morning and peace be upon you, Declan. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. We have Walid Ahmed joining me, Declan, and also uh, a young imam, uh, Daniel Kalun. Uh, so we shall be asking you various questions on your book, which is You're going a beautiful to group book. up on you now, are you? No, no, it's a beautiful book. Uh, <laughs> I love the cover. A beautiful picture of the promised Messiah, Hazamiza Ghulam Ahmed, the founder of the Amdiya Muslim community. Um, and... Uh, and and uh, and congratulations on the publications of that book. Uh, the Lahore Ahmadiyya Movement is the title. It's not yes. the first book you have written on Islam, is it? Uh, so what's your fascination with Islam? You being a Roman Catholic Christian. Oh gosh, that's 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 quite a, a loaded question. I <laughs> Everything's going to be loaded today. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> I, I go back. I go back a bit. Uh, yes, you're right. I mean, I first wrote a, a, a quite a, a big book on Islam. It was published six, uh, six years ago. Mm. Um, Voices of Modern Islam: What It Means to Be a Muslim Today. And that really was, you know, kind of in the aftermath of a lot of terrorist attacks here in the UK mm. uh, and obviously elsewhere in the world. And it started off with my, I suppose, interest in, in why, if Islam is such a peaceful and tolerant and good religion, you know, why does it breed, True. you know, uh, people who go out and, you know, um, do such terrible things. But, you know, that, that was a long time ago when I started researching my first book, that's seven, eight years ago, and I knew very little about Islam then. I know, well, I know a little bit more now, mm -hmm. but... Um, yeah, the book turned out differently than, than what I started off uh, with my research. And I, I, I suppose it became into kind of like a textbook, a textbook for, for students, for, um, you know, secondary schools, colleges and so on and so forth, so that they can get a, a grasp of what Islam really is, because, you know, um, non-Muslims know very little about Islam. Indeed, so it's indeed, a very yeah. good introduction mm. in, into Islam. Um, uh, obviously, in that book, I covered all the main groups, Sunni, yes. Shia, Sufi, and, of course, your good self. Uh, you, you did, uh, and you even mentioned me in that book. I mean, it, it makes that book a very special book, <laughs> certainly to me. But but the way you presented that was that you, you wanted the voices of Muslims to say what their religion is, which is sometimes not Absolutely. done by media. I want yeah. everybody to have their everybody to have their say. Yes, mm, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, which is a fantastic approach, and uh, with, I thoroughly enjoyed reading that book of yours. Uh, mm. How many times were you mentioned? Uh, just the once. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I read it cover <laughs> to cover, but <laughs> now, the, the big, the big question, Ashton, is how much did you enjoy reading this new book? Ah, the, we, we're going to come to that. Don't you worry. I, uh, I, I enjoyed it. I. Enjoyed enjoyed it. It was enlightening. Oh. Uh, I once I would say I agreed with, the, with everything that you've written in there, but then you've only just narrated what people have said to you from the Lahori group, which is fine. Um, and we're not here to criticize uh, you for any of that. Uh, but you're coming to that book, as you just mentioned it. What brought you to write about uh, the Lahoris, about Mr. Glam Ahmed, because you speak of him quite highly in the book? Uh, and uh, what brought about a visit to Lahore? Um, well, when I was writing the, 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 the first book, uh, I did touch base with, with the Lahori uh, movement, but, uh, but, but only slightly, and that kind of came, came at the end of my research. 
So um, I met up with the man that I um, uh, that I was in touch with, you know, several years ago. I met him at a conference at Oxford University. This was in the summer of 2022, and yeah, he's a very friendly man, and so on and so forth. And he was telling me about um, he was telling me about the Jelsa because they, they were returning to to do the um, their annual Jelsa in Lahore in December 2022 and that was the first one you know after after the, after covid mm. uh, so that, that they had a break for a couple of years and one thing led to another and i you know i expressed interest in about writing about the differences because at that stage i wasn't fully uh, briefed on the key differences between between uh, both the Cardianis and the Lahoris he explained it uh, briefly to me, and one thing led to another, and I was invited to go and to attend the Jelsa. And at that stage, I was only going to intend, I had only intended to write either an article, an extended article, or a booklet about about the Lahores. But um, that kind of, you know, I was given so much material mm. um, that that ended up into the slim book. And it is a slim book. It's not a big book. That no, I've it um, is, and, and a very readable book at, at that, because I managed well, to read it in a, a day or day and a half, uh, and, and it was a very readable book. Yeah. Uh, and, and what I like about you is that uh, you, you you look at and research the subject quite well uh, from what perspective that you're looking at, and uh, that's quite impressive. The, uh, when I read the book, I, to me it looked like there was a book of two parts. One part was about your research and what you wanted to say about that. And the second part was what the viewpoint of the Lahoris was, just like Voices of Islam was about views, points of views of Muslims. This was the points of view of Lahoris. Uh, would that be a fair assessment of how the book is? Yeah, I, th I think it's probably in three parts. I mean, obviously, there is the mini biography of Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, and that kind yeah. of stands out by itself. Uh, you know, you can read that with uh, whoever you are, with, hmm. whichever group you belong to. I think also what is key to the book is the the chapter on persecution. Again, that's very readable for, for, for both groups. Uh, and that really, for me... That for me was 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 really really poignant. That was really that brought home to me the persecution and the and the, and the really truly horrific time times that um, you, you know that that, that uh, Ahmadiyas all Ahmadiyas have mm. in in Pakistan. I mean, you know, in that in that section and the interviews that I did, Ashen, you know, I I, I really listened to men who had lost everything. Yeah. You know, they lost their homes, their businesses, they've been beaten, they've been tortured, they've been imprisoned, they had to leave their neighborhoods, marriages had broken up, they were betrayed, they lost, and death, death as well, you know, I spoke mm. to people who had lost. Very human members. side of things, wasn't it? That's the very yeah. human oh. side of, of reality yeah. of what, what's happening, indeed. And, and, and you're that right. kind of formed the basis of, you know, you, you, you made re a reference to the article that I did for the European mm. in... in uh, this month it came out earlier this month. Yeah. You know this persecution. This 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 this. That's just stop. That's just stop. We 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 we're shouting the same about what's happening in Gaza. Likewise, what's happening to persecuted communities around the world. And this this week is 
Holocaust Remembrance Week. It's a reminder for us about human life, and 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 your book certainly aptly fits into that. You write. Uh, by the way, my my co uh, presenters today haven't read your book yet because I only had the one copy. No, because oh, I, I I'm the only one you you sent a copy to. You see, so I read it. So they're relying oh, yeah. on me to provide the material for them today. So they will. He, he won't have done. He won't have done his research. No, though. no, no. But they will butt in. They will butt in on on the answers that you give. I'm sure, or, or something that might come. But you you write very favorably of the founder of the community, as a Mr. Ghulam Ahmed, peace be upon him. Uh, what was it particularly that impressed you about him? Okay, he, he, I mean, he is such. Uh, he was such a lovely, sweet spirit. He was such a deeply spiritual, religious man. It would be it would be so wrong of me if I did write anything mm. uh, uh, bad about him. And 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 and, and God knows, um, Ashton, the invitation was there because you know I only have to mention Mirza Ghulam Ahmed to any. Sunni Muslim or any other Muslim, and <laughs> they'll, they'll, they'll fill my head with other stories, yeah. and, and and as well as filling my head with stories, they sent me plenty of material, you know, that mm. was very derogatory about them. Yeah. But you know, um, that, I, that 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 well, I didn't want to do that. Um, I wanted to to research his life, write about him. And also, I was fascinated, and this is something that you uh, or anybody, anybody in your group never told me, uh, the beautiful prose and poetry that, that he wrote in his time. Mm. Oh, he was such a beautiful poet. Um, and, and, and I have... Um, and, you, and, you, and you write quite... Uh, you mentioned quite a few of them in your book as yeah, well. Yeah, I did, yeah. yeah they were beaut- beautiful chosen uh, poems, by the way, I, I must admit. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, I was very interested. I mean, he has a very interesting story. I don't know that, that, you, that your friend was, um, uh, I heard him um, do a little bit of it on your show this morning. Um, yeah, he, he lived a very, very fascinating life. I mean, he had no interest in money or wealth or material. I mean, he was, he was devoted. He was devoted to the Quran. Mm. He was devoted to Islam. Indeed, uh, something we were discussing this morning as yeah, well with the yeah. lead mm. was talking about that as well. His hospitality for others and care for others was was immense. Um, you, you, but let me just let me just yeah. say one other thing. Please, it's, it's a beautiful vibe that he has given to all his followers. And you know, it was very interesting with, that I, you know I spent time in in Lahore with the Lahores, mm. and they have exactly the same vibe that you guys have got, uh, which led me to believe all followers. Of Mirza Ghulam Ahmed has have been blessed with that vibe. Absolutely. You you mentioned about the poetry. In fact, you know every uh, event that we hold, uh, we will always start off with uh, a recitation of one of his poems, uh, whether it's the Jalsa Salana or any national events that we hold or local events in our mosques. We will always have a recitation of the Promised Messiah's poems. It, well, they are, and there are books like the, the, the Duris Amin, for example. Yeah, you mentioned that in your book, Duris Amin. That is a book that we, we publish as well, and, and we often read from those uh, poems. But they're in Urdu, and uh, not all of them have been translated in English, though many have been by, by the Ahmadiyya community as well. You, you, you tend to write about uh, groups which are probably the underdogs uh, in society, the Muslims, the Ro- the, the polar uh, patients, the Romani people, the LGBTQ community. Uh, is that why you chose the Lahoris as well? They're the underdogs in, in, the, in all this? Um, yes, to a certain degree. To a certain degree, the, 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 there's certainly a story there. Obviously, 
you're right about the numbers. There's, there's far less of them than, than your good selves. Mm. But um, yeah, they, okay. they are, I suppose, they are a forgotten minority, are they not? Mm. Well, yeah, uh, Declan, uh, uh, yes, th- I, I've read extracts of your b- book uh, because uh, Arsene very uh, kindly sent me some of them and I found them, uh, uh, well, I found uh, the research uh, quite impressive and I also found it very easy to read, just like Arsene was saying. But um, uh, why didn't you choose to write about Arsene's community and not... <laughs> <laughs> because he's not the underdog, you see. <laughs> yeah, he thinks he's an underdog, uh, as within the uh, framework of the um, the wider Muslims. Why not um, uh, the Qadiani community as opposed to the Lahori community? Was it just coincidence? Well, uh, look, you know, at the end of the day, I go where the story is, and, you know, I this something attracted me to Lahore and their story and and uh, yes so you're right in that sense it, it, it's their viewpoint um, to a certain degree but um, I think I've also been a, a very favorable to Ahmadiyya Muslims uh, as a whole because in my first book you know with not credited uh, for being uh, an author or the only author that has, has put Ahmadiyya Muslims on par with all other Muslims so, um, in that sense, I think I've treated you all quite favorably. And I wasn't when I went to when I went to Pakistan. When I went to Lahore, I made it quite clear that I was that I was friends with the Qadiani community, and that I knew several of you here in in the UK who had helped me with my research for the first book. So they were well aware of they were well aware of who I was and 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 my background. I didn't I didn't hide any of that. So why did I choose them? I, I chose them because I wanted to hear, you know, it is a small community, and I wanted to... I, I suppose I was interested in the theological differences, because obviously, you know, they... they, they um, I suppose one of the key theological differences between the Lahoris and yourselves is that they don't believe that Moses Ahmad was a prophet. Mm. And I suppose in my initial stage of this, this research when I was writing this this, this uh, short book was I at that stage wonder well why why do Sunni Muslims still say this that they would be outside the pale of Islam and I suppose it's obviously when I delve more into it and uh, about Mirza Muhammad and the prophet being the prophet messiah and the uh, uh, um, Imam Mahdi mm. that's uh, it, it, it that kind of fell into play yeah, both groups uh, agree that he was the Promised Messiah and Mahdi. Uh, what did you understand what the Promised Messiah title refers to? And and what did Mr. Ghulam Ahmed mean by claiming to be that, to be the Promised Messiah and Mahdi? Well, you know, I mean, I mean this, this book, this book is, is, is really from the Lahori point of view. So they obviously, they, they believed him to be the Prophet Messiah. Uh, they, they only did, we mean, at the end of the day, there's, there's only a few key differences between both communities. I mean, you know, you, you you agree on so much, um, far more than you disagree on. But um, obviously, that is that is a sticking point. They do, they steadfastly um, do not accept that Mirza Ghulam Ahmad was a prophet. Declan, um, it's Daniel here. Um, I my kind of uh, interest is towards the theological. And a little bit towards the historical side of things, that's what I've studied for seven years at our, at our community seminary. Um, so I've got a question with regards to that. So um, obviously you've mentioned how 
um, there's a difference in opinion with regards to the status of prophet prophethood um, of the mm-hmm. Messiah. Um, mm-hmm. But do you believe that there's also, as you said, there are also some other differences? Do you believe, because from the angle that I see it and from what I've studied and read, um, I feel like the bone of contention is Khilafat, right? The caliphate, the successorship of um, the promised Messiah, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, do you, do you th- could you kind of touch upon that topic a bit about the whole, their perspective of Khilafat and, you know, how that falls into, because from what I understand, they elected or they agreed to the election of the first Khalifa, but then no uh, Khalifa after that. So how do they make sense of this whole situation? from what you understand? Well, as I said, I touched upon this split. It, it, it obviously is from their perspective, but yeah, um, obviously, Malana uh, Muhammad Ali, he um, he had certainly had, had um, differences with the, uh, with, with the second caliph, and it was at that point that, that the, uh, they decided to part company, that there was irreconcilable uh, uh, differences betwe- between them. Right, but but then the question that would arise in my head is that they accepted um, Khilafat, um, the first caliph, right? They accepted him as a caliph in whatever uh, authority they accepted him, not not an autocratic or not a full in full authority. However, they accepted him, but they did accept a caliph. So after they split, um, was there any reason that they did not carry on that institution of caliphate according to their own understanding? Well, they didn't. I mean, they didn't believe that the that the second caliph was suitable for the role. He was too young. He was too inexperienced, and he and you know, he had some maverick ideas, uh, and that that went against their grain or, or what was considered. Um, right, but I mean, I mean, I mean, they themselves. So Muhammad Ali and um, Khaja Kamaluddin. They've so they've split with their group now. Why did they not carry on the caliphate as within their own movement? Because they clearly had accepted that there was a caliph after the promised Messiah. Yeah, because they gave allegiance well, to the I first caliph. Yeah. yeah, they would have carried. I think they would have carried on with the caliphate. It's not that they were against the caliphate per se. They would have ca- carried on with the caliphate, but they didn't believe that the second caliph no, no. Well, was uh, was 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 suitable material for the no. role. No, no, I understand. His ideas and philosophies and. Um, went, went to, we certainly went against uh, what uh, Muhammad Ali, yeah. Ali um, believed in, and mm. he said, "I can't be, I can't be part of this." I think what Daniel is saying is that uh, forget the second caliph of the, um, the community. Why didn't the Lahoris bring the institution of caliphate in their organization if they agreed that the caliphate w- was needed because they followed the first one? Yeah, I really can't answer that. The, um, the, the but, but you have answered it, Declan. You have answered it in your book. You said that that was an exception, and the main bone of contention was that as when the Quran talks about caliphate, it was yes. only after the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. It did not apply to yes, all prophets. That, yes, that is with their view. And they, so, does, so does that contradict them accepting the first caliph? No, he he's they're saying what Declan what I understood what Declan wrote mm. is that they were saying that as far as the caliphate is concerned, it was only applicable to what was to follow the Holy Prophet, Holy peace be upon him. And this was just a special measure for the first caliph that they were referring to as a Khalifa. Okay. The real Khalifa, they mm. they were saying the real caliphate, as far as I understood from your book, Declan, 
was the Anjaman, the the executive. That was the okay. Khalifa. That, that was appointed. That was successor. That okay. was appointed by. Is the that, was that your thinking? Uh, is that what you got out from uh, the Lahori's declaration? I think so, but I suppose when 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 Muhammad Ali, when he went to Lahore, obviously he set up the new movement in, in what has to what has been shaped into mm. the Lahori movement of today. So obviously there did there was there was a, there was a gear shift in that sense. Right. Okay. So l- let me take it from another angle then. When the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, passed away, there was some unrest amongst the companions. And Ali at the time asserted that he should have been caliph, right? Now, this, uh, after Abu Bakr had been chosen by the popular choice, you know, Abu Bakr was chosen, Ali sort of didn't accept it. Eventually, Ali gave allegiance to Abu Bakr and the other three caliphs after him. But following Ali's death, the Muslims split into camps as Shias and Sunnis, etc. And and we know what else happened. Was the Ahmadiyya split by the holy group also about a clash of personality and a personal ego, i.e. Muhammad Ali supporters felt it below them to give allegiance to a 25-year-old man. You mentioned that they was too young mm-hmm. and experienced, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, despite the fact that the second caliph was the editor of uh, Al-Fazl uh, at the age of 17 or 18. Uh, so was it about an ego that they couldn't follow him or was it the principle? that uh, well, there shouldn't be a caliphate. Far more experienced people. I mean, you can, you can see that in all realms of life. You know, mm. there's uh, there will be a level of resentment if it goes to a young person. Um, but I suppose the, the, the Lahori's always believed that, you know, that, that, that it was kind of, become, well, it has since become almost a family dynasty in, in, the, in the line of, of, of uh, caliphs. But they couldn't have said that at the election of the second because the first caliph was no, no relation yeah, to the family. The and yeah, then, and then the yeah, first caliph yeah. was not the relation of the first yeah, uh, caliph. Yeah. So they couldn't have come up with that thinking at yeah. that moment in time. Yeah, you know, so, okay. there, is, there is that question. There is that possibility, indeed. Yeah. Yeah. Even so, you can ask all these really, really, really technical questions uh, uh, to me, but you know what you really do need to do, Ashen, is to, is to ask them directly. Indeed, and, indeed, indeed. Um, asked, no, but we 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 we're commenting on the book and the content of your book, so that's why we're asking you these uh, these questions. If, but if we can, yeah, sorry, if we can yeah, come I mean, back to the book. I appreciate, I appreciate you're asking questions, and you're, you're absolutely right to ask me. But you yeah. know, I only touched upon this in and and, and the, the chapter on the split is really actually quite tiny. Yeah. the book really does concentrate on Moses. Oh, really, absolutely, and this is what I started. That you've written a beautiful yeah. passage on on the yeah. promised Messiah. And, you, you know, because, because you you know you know Ashen. They believe passionately in their truth that that they are right and that you guys are wrong. No, no, you no. guys are exactly the same. Correct. You believe that you're right and that they're wrong. Indeed. And for the truth, the truth, you know, is always going to lie somewhere in between. Absolutely. No such thing as either group being entirely right mm. or being entirely wrong. And it, that, that's what all all this is about. Is about bringing sides together. So sure. really, both sides do need to come together. You do need to engage in dialogue because it's only then really that, you know, forgiveness and acceptance and atonement really will take place. And, and you, you put know, that and you put that in your yeah. conclusion, don't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. indeed. Mm-hmm. I think uh, uh, Daniel has... This is a wound that has never, ever healed. <laughs> yeah. yeah. For some. <laughs> and, you know, when, uh, when is that wound going to heal? 
Are you going to leave it to others to heal? Are you, as a community, are you all going to try and do something in your own lifetimes to heal this wound? Or, or do we, or do we um, continue of portraying the message of the promised Messiah in our own ways as well? We can do that as well. According, according to your own perspective. If you dismiss them and say that they're irrelevant and that they're only small in number and you, you wish that they'll die out in 50 or 100 years' time, you know, what you're doing is you, you're only doing what the Sunnies are doing to you. You know, the Sunnies want to, for you guys to disappear off the face of the earth. And no, I think, De- Declan, um, I think we're, we're in agreement with you in, in the sense that they have a right to believe in what they believe in and their own perspective, right? Um, they can absolutely believe in that. They can absolutely preach that, right? Um, they have a full right of doing that. And we don't wish, uh, you know, total annihilation or destruction upon them. Uh, they have their differences with us, um, and, and that's fine. I think the main point here is that all we want to do is present our perspective of this whole, um, you know, the promised Messiah, his life and his successorship as well. Um, I, I don't think there's, there, especially these days, I, I don't know, um, I, I don't see any bad blood between us and the Lahoris at, at the moment. In fact, know? we were discussing, uh, Daniel, myself and Walid earlier, that uh, we don't talk enough about the, the Lahori Guru because we have our own projects and we have our own movement to, to, to progress and, 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 and we, we, that is what we concentrate on rather than the differences between the two yeah. of us. We want to promote well, what we understand about the message of the promised be, Messiah. That might be true, action, but you know, there is a silence there. But, I, mean, I mean, as I said, it is a wound. There is resentment mm. there between both parties, spoken about or not. Both parties go about their daily business, yeah. not denying that. But there is an unhealed wound there, and you can't you can't deny that. When when you uh, and I know Daniel's got a couple of questions about the book, uh, so and, and we want to come back to the book. But I just want to just finish off this particular angle from you: is that in your interactions with Ahmadis, uh, the Qadiani Ahmadis, have you come across them speaking against the Lahori group before you wrote this book? Uh, no, no, that that would be wrong of me to say that I did sure. because um, there wasn't. The, the, um, it, w- w- before I wrote this book, yeah. before when I was r- writing my my first book on Islam, yeah. no, the, you guys hardly mentioned them. They, right. they, um, yeah. And, and I, 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 at that stage, I was so consumed in Islam per se, sure. I wanted to know so much yeah. um, that, that there wasn't there wasn't room to, yeah. to no, no, talk no, about it. Yeah. Again, Declan, I, I agree with you. I wish we could um, obviously mend this rift between the Lahoris and the Qadianis. I wish we could mend the rift between the Shias and the Sunnis. Obviously, um, I wish we could mend the rift between the Catholics and the Protestants. It just goes on and on, <laughs> right? There's always going to be a rift, a, a difference of opinion, and that's fine. Yeah. As uh, as long as we don't harm each other. Exactly. And as 007 wisely said, it's a matter of perspective. Ooh, yeah, right. <laughs> now, a question with regards to your book, Declan, because I'm really interested in this one quote, which um, with this one reference. I haven't come across it before. And the reason I'm asking you is so that I could go and um, do my own research on it as well, if possible. Um, it's where you, it's a footnote, I believe it's footnote number 41, where it says, Meer Narsin Nawab. Mirza um, Ghulam Ahmed's father-in-law said to Maulana Abdul Haq Vidyarthi's father, Ghulam Muhammad, that Mirza Sahib was hasty in dying. Mia was still young and the first Khilafat slipped out of our hands, but this will never happen again. Maulana Abdul Haq related this to Lord Shahid Aziz. So um, I just wanted to ask, firstly, this seems like an um, oral tradition, right? It's, it doesn't seem like, I, as in, I don't know, maybe it's been written down somewhere, maybe it was published somewhere, but it seems like an oral tradition. Um, and it's coming from, obviously, their, their angle. So, 
um, his, as, as a historian, um, how would how would you recommend or advise me to approach this particular um, quote? Should I treat it as a primary reference or a secondary source? And you know, how much credibility can I give to an oral tradition like this, as opposed to so much written um, material that's available? I wouldn't be I wouldn't be the expert to ask on that because that was a direct quote. That was that was. Uh, based on a case study, was it not that this um, Shahid Aziz? I mean, I could put you in touch with Shahid, uh, Shahid Aziz. So, did um, he just narrate this quote to you? Yes, he did. Yes. Okay. All right. No. Well, okay, that's interesting. I, I think I'll, I'll look into Sh- uh, Shahid Aziz's work then and, and his material and his reasoning behind all of this. And that's all I wanted to ask because I, I, I'm genuinely interested in this particular yeah. quote and I want to look more into it because I didn't know about this before. We'll bring you back on the show, Daniel, and ask you more on that question. Uh, coming back to your book, uh, Declan, you state in your book that the Lahori group want to spread the message of Mr. Ghulam Mahmud and his teachings and writings, uh, and and they are capturing. And you state that, or they state that they are capturing the attention of many around the world, particularly in the West. Uh, mm-hmm. What sort of efforts? Uh, from what you have witnessed or what they say uh, are the Lahori's making to do that and what sort of impact are they having around the world in your view to the best of my knowledge I suppose they're availing like everybody else of social media um, so um, from what I can gather um, you know they have social media that, that, that people contact them mm-hmm. both in Pakistan and outside of Pakistan and that that uh, you know because they have an online presence and that people see them and um, stumble upon them and, and, and contact them and th- that way. Hmm. <clears throat> yeah, um, Declan, um, one of the uh, differences between their their understanding and uh, the understanding of the Kandiani group is this issue about profithood. Um, yes. Now, do you find as a result of that, because um, that's also a bone of contention between the Qadiani Muslim, uh, Ahmadi Muslims and other Muslims. Do you find that because of that, the persecution is any less of the Lahori Muslims because they don't believe Mr. Ghulam to be a prophet? Yeah. It, it wouldn't be the main reason. I think, you know, I suppose this, 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 this Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, um, you, know, he, you know, with him being the promised Messiah, that, that really is the... The red mist comes down when, uh-huh. when his name is mentioned. Um, I just think that that's just an add-on. Um, it, it, I mean, for, for Sunni Muslims, Sunni Muslims, you, yeah, they're they're very passionate about the Prophet Muhammad. They they very much believe that he, you know, that that he sealed prophethood mm-hmm. for eternity. So yeah, that, that that's a very staunch point that they will not yield um, any any other um, different uh, uh, viewpoint on. But um, it's Mirza Ghulam Ahmed. There's, there's something about him that's, that that he 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 frightens Sunni Muslims and all other Muslims. It's just something. <laughs> don't don't <laughs> we know it? Right. <laughs> yeah. he's, he's a huge bone of contention, and yeah. um, you know that 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 one particular element is just part of the overall package. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
And, uh, you know, you uh, you mentioned in your previous book you came across many Muslims, you you made friends with many of them. I know, for example, Sheikh Asrar is a good friend of yours, yeah. and he's very yeah. vocal against the promised Messiah, the, the Zaglam Muhammad. And uh, do you think... Well, he's conditioned, he's conditioned like all, like all other, yes, like, like all his contemporaries. Correct, exactly, absolutely, they're conditioned, uh, which is shows that their lacking of doing their own research is sometimes a bit lacking well, and, and they rely unfortunately they're all brainwashed they're all trained to yeah, to, yeah. to hate Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, but they know very, very little about, about him. him I mean, yeah. They didn't know there were two groups until I told them quite recently. <laughs> they had never heard of the Lahori group. They right, thought you were right. all a united group of people. Indeed. No, it's, it's interesting that an impartial person like you, Declan, um, sees sees how, you know, this brainwashing is going on and everything. Mm. So uh, just a quick question with regards yeah, to this yeah. whole situation, and the, especially persecution as well. You've written uh, extensively on that in, in the book. Mm. From an outsider's perspective, maybe, you know, maybe we're being in the ring, maybe we're missing something or we're not seeing the bigger picture here. How... As in, obviously, it's it's not a one-word answer or one-sentence answer, but how do you think we should go about it or they should, the Sunnis should go about it for us to maybe come to common ground, um, for them to maybe hate the promised Messiah a bit less, you know, maybe to be less derogatory towards him? Um, because it, it feels like no matter how much we're um, constantly... Uh, you know, uh, teaching and preaching about his life and his good character and everything, and then not just us, clearly impartial parties like yourself as well. Um, it it seems not to make much of a dent to that psyche um, of the Sunnis. What, what do you think about this whole um, situation? Is there a solution? I think there is a solution. I just think that they need to look at you differently. They really need to see you as the good people that you are. They really good. To, they need to see you as the good Muslims that you are. Um, they need to see that you believe passionately in the Quran, that you practice the Quran, that you believe passionately in the Prophet Muhammad. You you believe in the Hadith. You believe in you, you believe again. You know there's so much that there's there's so much similarities mm -hmm. between between you all. But unfortunately, it's just one or two or three small differences that has coloured the water that has. Um, yeah. And, and, and those three points have expanded into other points, which are all part, linked to these three, two or three points that you just mentioned as well. Mm. But they need to first and foremost recognize you as fellow Muslims. Yeah, fellow and, Muslims and, and you have different. certainly uh, said that in your books and, and in, in your voices with us here on, on our show and other places. And you've also got people like Taj Hage who, who calls us as Muslims as well, which is fantastic that other uh, Muslims who might otherwise have opposed us are calling us Muslims. So well done to you for, for making those sort of approaches and attacks or contacts and, and making people say that. My only concern now is when you write a book like this, Right, and it's <laughs> highly favorable of Mirza Ghulam Ahmed. Okay, uh, yeah. your friends or you know the people that you made contacts with, will they start judging you and and sort of and become a critic of you rather than continue that friendship that you've developed with these other people who oppose us? Well, well, they shouldn't, and, and so far they haven't, because you know, as a writer, I go where there's a story. So you know. Um, if the Sunni Muslims want me to write something about them or, or something relevant about their their particular um, uh, you know um, take on Islam, I'm I'm willing to do that. Um, you know, I'm I'm willing to explore different um, perspectives. Um, 
I'm not attached to. I'm not a Muslim, and I'm not attached to 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 any group. I can be friends with uh, with 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 different groups, different people. But um, it's bringing you all you guys together because you know, um, as as I keep saying, there's, there's far far more similarities than there are differences. But unfortunately, it's these differences that keep people apart. Uh, and um, but you know, you and I are doing work together on debates, and hopefully, hopefully, we're going to sow our small seed. If everybody did something, Indeed. you know, if everybody sowed a seed, you know, sometimes the flowers would appear in that garden. Exactly. Indeed, and and amen to that, and all that you said. I think we'll leave us to one question, and was to end yeah, this conversation as well. I am. It's clear. I mean, you also mentioned it that there's there's a difference in the number of uh, people that have. Uh, align themselves with the Lahori group as opposed to the Qadiani group. And there's also a difference between the progress of the two groups. Why it's such a big difference? What do you put that to? Well, that's that's a bit of an unfair question because that's like saying, you know, that the, 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 your group is small in number. You, you know, you have 10 to 12 million people in comparison to nearly 2 billion Muslims. So, you know, you know, don't... <laughs> Well, I, I guess proportionately, that. proportionately, what would you say? But, but, but you could say, but you could argue, despite the small numbers, we are making an impact because every Sunni group or even Shia group wants to attack us because they feel us as a as a, yeah. a, 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 a threat, as a threat, <laughs> right? Uh, whereas uh, their numbers does not seem to impact as much. That's what we're trying to say. No, I'm talking yeah, about the, the, the number. The number is quite small. Yeah, hundred thousand in comparison to. 10 to 12 million, we said 12 million. Yeah, Declan, when we um, talk about achievements, I mean, we've got the largest mosque in Western Europe, the first uh, international 24-hour uh, satellite television. There's a lot of things. First mosque in, now, now, first stop, mosque in London. Stop showing off. Stop showing so, off. The Lahoris, the Lahoris are full of resilience. They're full of strength. <laughs> they're full of willpower. They will survive. You can build 10 other big mosques. They will still survive. If they are promoting the message of the promised Messiah, amen to that. Absolutely. They do. They believe passionately. Passionately. Last word with you on on what Declan has been saying. uh, Declan, I applaud the work that you've been able to accomplish, and particularly the fact that you have been able to describe the uh, promised Messiah as you have. Uh, and rightly in very glowing terms. So I think that uh, is something that's very appreciated. Thank you very much. Can I just ask yes. one, one? Can I? Can I? Am I allowed to ask one of question? Of course. <laughs> Will my book be allowed to go on sale at your bookshop in your mosque? <laughs> You'll have to ask the book department for that. We are not the authority on that. <laughs> but I'll book. buy one from my library. Yeah. I mean, I also look after a library here at the mosque. So I'll certainly buy, in fact, two copies. <laughs> there you go. So we're going to put there your you book go. up in in the in the national library. Yes, the the <laughs> yes uh, so that's a start. Declan, yeah. maybe if you write a book about us, you can find it in our bookshop in the near future. And and what I can do for you, Declan, <laughs> is uh, we'll speak to the national president and see if we can bring you to our jalsa and you can have your book stall uh, book displayed there. But you know, one of the things that that, that that I really had in mind when I was writing the the, the short mm. book, and, and you, you mentioned the, the the biography, the mini biography of of Mirza Ghulamamad, is you know, that's really for young people to read because so so many young people really don't know that much about his life yeah. and his background and 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 those beautiful poems and prose that he wrote. 
and that is that that for me is is a taster that that for me is a hoop to 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 bring young people in because whether whether you're um Lahoria or Cardiani you have to rely on the young people who are the future of, of, of both your organisations. Thank you. Fantastic thought. Uh, I fully 100% agree with you. Daniel, last word from you in terms of uh, what Declan has said. Yeah, just on a finishing note with regards to your book, Declan, uh, I do want to let you know actually that this um, it's, it's actually a really big um, contribution in the way of uh, research and um, understanding for us as well of the Lahori uh, group. Um, and I'm sure that you know this mm. this book will be studied and researched by our um scholars and our uh, students as well in our seminary and not just that also in our um our research department i'm a part of the research department of our community and um i was speaking to our um head curator and you know we, we've even uh, ordered this book for to be part of our internal library in the research department so that we can um do further That's research three sales, on it. Then. Yeah, that's that's what he says. But we generally will will be looking forward to uh, going through this book and and. So yeah, you can see, it. there's great interest in your book, and good luck with yes, it. Yes, and yes, but but please, please, Teresa, this really is only an introduction. I know that, that you guys you've you've written your own probably voluminous um, um, tome on the split. I mean, I, I my when I describe the split in this book, I think it's only eight pages. This yeah. really is only. Scraping the surface, so yeah. uh, you know, I didn't delve one hundred percent into that because because that wasn't the, the the reason for me going to Lahore. That wasn't the reason for me to. Um, I didn't want to. You know, I, I didn't want this is. A, I didn't want it to be a divisive book. So you know, if you, I, I think that that they probably have far more to say on this place than actually is in there in this place. And, you know, I know that you brought up questions about um, the Caliph, you know, the, the, the Caliph um, and, and their reasons between splitting with the first Caliph and not continuing with the Caliphate mm. after that. You, you Maybe that needs to be explored in far more detail than I went into. But, um, no, it's something that I've, I've planned. I've, I've planned with Daniel that we will be discussing uh, this in our future shows as one of the segments you, of the show. You know, you know uh, Ashan, you know, bring in the other side because otherwise well, it's only going to remain one-sided. No, no. As you've seen, we on my show, we I bring all sorts of guests from all faiths. Uh, and all beliefs, and uh, I think they, 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 we are right, they are no, wrong. No, 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 no. This has never been the Ahmadi approach in in, in preaching. It's always been that uh, the message is more important than the debate on it. Uh, so that's how we approach things. And in, and God yeah, willing, we will continue. Look, the we can ever be friends again. What would what would we have to do to to become friends with? Could you that again? question be asked to Shias and Sunnis? Could that uh, question be asked no, 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 to to, 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 to Roman Catholics and to Protestants, yeah, etc.? I'm not saying that there aren't problems there, but you have to address what's on your doorstep first and foremost. When you address what's on your doorstep and you sort out the differences between your two groups, then you can expand to the Catholics and the Protestants and the Shias and the Sunnis. No, indeed, uh, and I think with that, uh, that, that that's uh, that's fair enough to say that. But I will I will point you to one thing, and we'll close on that. 
is that when you go to the Ahmadiyya websites, you will not see any derogatory comments against the Lahores other than to try, <laughs> other than to state the fact that there has been a split and the reasons behind it. Whereas if you go to the Lahori website, there's a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of derogatory comments against the Ahmadiyya Qadiani groups. Look at but that's that's for them. We don't the mind. Wound. We don't no mind. Part of the wound. Indeed. The wound is still weeping. Indeed. Uh, Declan, thank you very much for coming on the show we had we gave you much more time than we had allocated and thank god we did that yeah. because it's been a wonderful discussion very interesting and th i think we, we need to bring you on again sometime in the near future again and we'll see what else we can uh, do with you in terms of promoting your wonderful book the lahore ahmadiyya movement by declan henry and the publishers are squirrel thank you very much declan henry thank you very much ashton no thank you Right, gentlemen, uh, that was Jacqueline Henley. Uh, I mean, the emphasis on the book is the promised Messiah. And he writes yeah. wonderfully about that. Hmm. Then he gives us views about what the Lahori's point of view is about why we split up and their point of view on Mirza Glam and then why he's not uh, a prophet, as they say. And as he mentioned, he, he only just touched up on that. It's just uh, uh, a 10 page chapter. Exactly. Yeah. So, and, and the contention very clearly from that discussion, will you, Daniel, is that uh, it's, a, it's around the election of the second caliph. Yeah. Right? Now, w was the first caliph of Hamdi under the opinion? that the caliph's role is only ceremonial because uh, Declan states from one of the uh, Lahori members that his role was just to as a ceremonial role uh, and he would manage the budget of the catering, you know, like a catering manager or something like that, right? Not the spiritual head or anything like that or mm -hmm. just, just a head. But the Anjuman has the whole authority. Administratively. Administratively, yeah. right? So is that how uh, the first caliph point of view was about his khilafat? Because yeah. I say, I, I raised this all, but only on the basis that the Khwaja Kamaluddin, Muhammad Ali, and the rest of the Lahoris gave allegiance to that caliph. Yeah, exactly. And they, and they st stayed subservient to that caliph. In what capacity were they following him? That's what I want to know. Right, so I think um, be better than my own words would be the words of the first caliph himself. Indeed. Right? So I'm just going to quote him. And yeah. um, this is actually, so obviously he he spoke Urdu and it's um, published in Khitabat uh, al-Nur, which is a collection of his sermons in Urdu. But um, we've also published this in English, um, this specific part in Al-Hakam, which is the English newspaper of the Ahmadi Muslim community. And that Al-Hakam was started at the time of the Promised Messiah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was uh, in Urdu back then, but when it was relaunched yeah. um, about five years ago, it was relaunched in the English language for yeah. the you know English audience. Okay. Um, so this article is called The Fate of Those Who Rejected Khilafat. Mm -hmm. um, a very well-researched piece of, of writing this is. And um, now I quote the first caliph himself, right, after he has been elected. He says, Allah the Almighty, through his grace, united you through our King, the promised Messiah, after the Holy Prophet Muhammad and then saved you from division by uniting you at my hands. Show gratitude for this blessing and do not occupy yourselves in futile discussions. Futile discussions, um, he's referring to the fact of this whole issue about what is Khilafat, how much authority should Khilaf, okay. should there be Khilaf, all of this, right? So he's saying, just don't worry about those futile discussions, just worry about what's actually important. 
he goes on to say, I cannot understand what type of spiritual or moral benefit you will achieve from these useless debates. Allah the Almighty has appointed me as a Khalifa according to his will and made you all bow your heads before me. It is utter folly if you continue to argue about it, even after this act of Allah the Almighty. I have told you many a time and shown from the Holy Quran that that to appoint a Khalifa is not the work of a human being, but the work of God Almighty. Allah the Almighty has appointed me as a Khalifa, just as he made Adam Islam, David Islam, Abu Bakr and Umar a Khalifa. If anyone says that the Anjuman has made me the Khalifa, then he is a liar. Such thoughts lead to destruction. Beware of them. Listen, no human being or Anjuman has made me the Khalifa, nor do I consider any Anjuman capable of making the Khalifa. Thus, no Anjuman has made me the Khalifa, and if that was the case, I would never, I would have never valued it, nor would I have bat an eyelid for it. Now, no one has the power to take away the cloak of this Khilafat from me. That's uh, an extract from Khitabat al Nur, mm-hmm. um, page 470 to 472. An excellent reference, believe. On what Sri says there, Declan says in his book that the Lahori's, and he quotes this uh, Lahori gentleman, that uh, it was the second caliph who wanted to change the role of the Khalifa uh, to be an authoritarian role, uh, not the one that Khalifa Awal, the first caliph. So that quote, which Daniel has now read, Mm. contradicts what the Lahori's have said. Well, Declan in his book mm-hmm. says that their contention is that the nature of this position of Khalifa mm-hmm. was different according to, to their the, understanding. To, to the, okay. They feel that um, the nature of uh, Khilafat, as we understood, as we've come to understand it, is is over autocratic. That's yeah. the word they That's use. The word they That's the word they use. So that was that. There's certain. Uh, responsibilities that the Anjaman has because the promise of Messiah had set it up and there's certain responsibilities that the Khalifa has and that uh, one of the ones that you you mentioned was about the budget Mm. the budget has to be something that is within the uh, within the uh, preserve of the Anjaman not to the Khalifa except for the catering uh, of the hospitality, <laughs> not catering, the hospitality. I don't know. I, I, but I think with regards to that, I think um, our perspective would would make a bit more sense. Obviously, um, you know, I'm I'm a follower of our perspective, mm. but You're I think biased, it, we understand. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> there's no point in denying it, but that's what I understand to be correct, right? Yeah. Which is that uh, in 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 his own quote, if he's comparing himself to. Uh, forget the prophets of Allah, forget mm. to Adam and um, David, Islam. if he's comparing his Khilafat to that of Abu Bakr and Umar, right? then all we need to do is look at what type of Khilafat their Khilafat was. Did mm. they have an Anjuman which had more authority than they did? Mm-hmm. No, they didn't. They had the final say. They had the final authority. They had people who advised them. Absolutely. Um, that's that's an Islamic principle mm. um, that we should um, keep advising each, each other. There's a mm. whole chapter in the Quran called mm. Shura, right? Which is mm. literally... Consultation. Consultation, right? Yeah. Mm. So that's fine. The Anjuman um, is there to advise and to help with running um, the orders of, of the community. Mm. But 
the first caliph himself has literally said that it's not even the anjuman who has made me the khalifa it's god who made me the khalifa mm-hmm. and that shows how high of a station um, oh, that of a khalifa is. is he's not there just to um, announce nikahs and mm-hmm. uh, lead friday prayers and pr- um, ordinary prayers because you don't need god to appoint you to do that any imam does i i've done that in my experience as an imam right mm-hmm. i didn't need god to appoint me to do that so mm-hmm. what's the distinction then why did god appoint um, the first caliph and why did the first caliph feel that god had appointed mm-hmm. him it's because he chose him to be the the leader of mm-hmm. the community mm-hmm. the absolute leader mm-hmm. with obviously um advisors being the mm-hmm. anjuman another thing uh, that we mentioned i know we've only got two minutes left very quickly on this one that muhammad ali and uh, had uh, and his followers tried to reconcile with the first khalifa uh, they went to him uh, to to try to make sure that there was no discord uh, but that wasn't successful uh is, was is that successful that that, that appeasement to the first caliph so that there wouldn't be discord amongst the followers yeah. all right about the election of a khalifa yeah all right now uh, how is is that no, the perspective we no, understand no no what i understood from his book yeah. was that uh, they were they were being accused of not uh, uh, being loyal to the to the first khalifa and so they went there and uh, you know sorted out the difference cleared the air is the Clear phrase the, yeah, yeah. yeah yeah um so that they were you know loyal to the mm. to the first khalifa okay. but they didn't want him to be an autocratic but can i just add oh. can i can i just add what clear the air actually was what mm. actually historically mm. happened clearing the air um was actually where they pledged allegiance to the first caliph again in 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 public yes. right in a public gathering right and what does that mean they're pledging allegiance to him right he's not pledging allegiance to them to the anjuman the anjuman is pledging allegiance to, to the, the khalifa, khalifa. Mm, right yeah. which obviously shows that they are accepting him yeah. as yeah. their leader yeah. and so allegiance what, means give, i mean selling yourself yeah. I mean, so it's everything so, exactly. so this this yeah. uh, this yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, angle of this that it was only because the second khalifa wanted to be authoritarian doesn't hold water really no. No. of the two things that yeah. we've discussed no it doesn't and no matter what they say that it's about the pro- status of prophet or the promise the real bone of contention clearly and absolutely is khilafat yeah mm. indeed okay listen gentlemen i think a lot needs to be discussed on this mm. uh, but thank you very much very interesting discussion thank you to declan henry thank you to sheikh rahman for coming on earlier mm. and thank you to our audience and listeners and thank you to both of you no, for g- okay. some great input jazakallah yeah. assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh